If you have a Bible with you this morning, please take it and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, it's typically our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and oftentimes we'll take a little bit of a break during the summer and do a more thematic uh, series, and we've done that some this summer. And uh, starting uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be returning to the Gospel of John. And we're looking forward to that. But this morning I want to take just a moment and look at one particular passage from this remarkable letter to Timothy from the Apostle Paul. I want to read for you this morning the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's inspired and unerring and life-giving Word. This is the Word of God, and so let us give it our full attention. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control." Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, we ask that you would speak to us by your Word. Do your good work in us, that you would conform us more to the image of your beloved Son. Sanctify us by your truth. Your Word, O Lord, is truth. This we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. When Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon, he was enduring at that time uh, something of a house arrest in Rome. That is, he was imprisoned, but he wasn't really in a prison. He was kept chained more or less round the clock to a Roman soldier, but he was also free to go with that soldier, of course, 
various places. He was given the freedom to receive guests, and he, and he was even, as Luke recounts it in the book of Acts, he was even able to preach during this time. He was under a, a bit of a flexible um, house arrest. But by the time he writes this letter, 2 Timothy, he has been arrested again, and this time there is no such flexibility. In fact, if you read on through this letter, you can tell by the way that Paul writes that he sensed the end was near, that this particular imprisonment would end at the edge of a sword. And indeed, it did. He writes elsewhere in this letter that he is, quote, being poured out like a drink offering, meaning he's about to be gone like a pitcher of water or wine poured out upon the dry Judean ground. And in fact, 2 Timothy is the final letter from Paul that God preserved for the church. When he wrote 2 Timothy, Paul was an older man, and there was a lot of mileage on his body. He'd experienced numerous instances of physical torture at the hands of the Romans long before the days of modern medication and modern medical treatment. And he wrote this letter from the isolation of a cold, dark, underground cell. In fact, it was hard to find him. Onesphorus traveled to Rome to try to find Paul, and it took him some time to even locate him, so well imprisoned he was. At one point, uh, near the end of this letter, Paul asks Timothy to, quote, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas. Just that one little detail is a a poignant reminder of Paul's circumstances in these days. He's he's cold. He's in a dark place. Tradition has it that Paul was, at the end of this imprisonment, beheaded, which was the typical execution method for a Roman citizen, which Paul was. The Apostle Peter also was executed round about this time, but he was not a Roman citizen, and tradition has it that he was crucified. All that to say, these were dark days for the church. These were distressing, deeply distressing times for the Christians at that time. Christians are being persecuted. Their apostles are being executed and exiled. And not only that, they are being deceived from false teachers from even within their own ranks. And out of all of that distress, 2 Timothy was written. Still, this letter possesses the sort of fatherly warmth that you would expect in a letter from an older apostle of Christ to his spiritual son. In fact, he refers here to Timothy as his beloved child. But with that, with all of that warmth, notice also in verse 1 that Paul still includes that formal introduction of himself. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, Timothy knows this, of course, but I think that Paul included that detail because he had every intention that this letter written to Timothy would also be distributed to the churches. Paul was, after all, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a a chosen emissary of Jesus Christ, whose words, when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were as authoritative and precious as the words of our Lord. Indeed, the inspired words of the apostles, we do consider the words of our Lord, do we not? 
And this letter, by God's own sovereign hand, became included in that inspired word that was to be entrusted to the church, read to the church, preached to the church, received by the church, and obeyed by the church. And so as such, Paul's words in this opening section may be rightly considered marching orders for us today in our own distressing hour. And here Paul gives Timothy, and through Timothy to us now, three commands. Very same types of commands that God, through the words of the Apostle, has given to every church throughout all the ages. And the first thing I want you to see here is that he calls us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Look there again in verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Now the testimony about our Lord can be broad enough to include everything we have in the New Testament and also everything we have in the Old Testament because everything in the Old Testament is ultimately pointing us to Christ. But at the heart of this testimony about our Lord is that golden nugget of the Gospel. And notice he says, don't be ashamed of this, nor of me his prisoner. Because if we are ashamed of a message, then we will be ashamed of its messenger. Notice how Paul refers to himself as the Lord's prisoner. I love this because as much as Rome would like to think of Paul as its prisoner, Paul knows that far before he was, long before he was in chains by Rome, he was the slave of Christ. And Rome may think that they are in control, but he's just exactly where the Lord Jesus would have him. This is a good reminder to us regarding our own circumstances. However much malice the world may throw out against God's people, know this, that long before we would ever be imprisoned by the world, and these would be precious truths for our brothers and sisters in place where persecution is so strong in the world. Long before we would ever be a prisoner of any worldly power, we are prisoners of Christ. We are the slaves of Christ. Indeed, Paul's favorite designation for himself, right along with the apostle of Jesus, is that he was the doulos, the slave of Jesus. Now, Paul here needs to tell us to not be ashamed of the gospel precisely because it is our tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul doesn't waste his time telling us to not do things that we just aren't going to do. Nor does he waste time telling us to do things that we will always take care of. You know, no one needs to tell you, listen, if you get hungry, eat something. If you get tired, rest. Nobody needs to really tell us that because we're going to take care of ourselves. What we need to be told to do are the things that we have a tendency not to do. So Paul tells us, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And he tells us that because we so often do lack courage when it comes to Christ and his gospel. And it's easy to understand why. The world considers the gospel of Jesus a shameful thing. And in fact, it is raged against The gospel is raged against as something that is bigoted and narrow and hateful. It offends the world's idols. It is an affront to the world's egalitarianism, which holds that 
all truth claims are equally valid. It's why no one thanks us for bringing up Jesus in the midst of a nice conversation. Right? I mean, unless we're in a Sunday school class or a home group. But in the world, if you all of a sudden, in the midst of a discussion about football or the weather or a relationship, if you say, you know what I'd really like to talk about? I'd like to talk about Jesus. They're not going to say, oh, that's great. We were just waiting for someone to bring up Jesus. Would you please tell us? No one's going to thank you for pointing out the facts that people are sinners and in need of a Savior and that there is no hope for salvation outside of Christ. They're not going to hear you say that and say, oh, listen, Gladys, come in the room. He's talking about Jesus. And the more clear we get in regard to the message of Jesus Christ, the more censorious and and angry the world will become at us. And that's why we need to be told, don't be ashamed. Or to state it positively, be courageous. Be courageous. Have courage. Now, being courageous doesn't mean acting like a jerk. Can we agree on that? That said, any amount of courage exercised for the sake of the gospel is going to be seen by the world as a bad thing. If you bring up Jesus, if you bring up the gospel, if you plead with people to believe in Christ, you will not be thanked for it. In fact, Paul tells us right here what the result of gospel courage will be. Look there at the end of verse 8. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice that Paul does not promise ease. He doesn't promise worldly notions of victory if we'll only be unashamed of the gospel no we've essentially got two choices here either we can be ashamed of the gospel and avoid the world's scorn or we can be a courageous for the gospel and suffer accordingly those are our options paul is not selling us anything here oh be courageous for the gospel and you will be praised you'll get that promotion you'll earn a place on the team if you'll just be courageous about the gospel none of that The invitation from Paul is so otherworldly. Do not be ashamed of the gospel or its messenger. Instead, suffer for it. But look at the connection Paul makes. That this suffering will be by the power of God. Notice how, like Jesus, Paul inverts worldly notions of power as conquest and instead portrays God's power as a divine enabling to suffer faithfully. Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, himself a disciple of the Apostle John, was one of the early Christian martyrs. He was burned to death at the stake, and as he was approaching his death, the reason being is he wouldn't say, Kaiser S. Curias, he would not say Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord. Polycarp said this, 86 years have I served Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And you know, at that moment, angels did not sweep down and take him away from the stake. But by the power of God, he suffered and endured faithfully. 
Now, do you see what Paul is doing there at the beginning of verse 9? At the beginning of verse 9, Paul then begins to just launch into a proclamation of the gospel. Because Paul cannot mention the gospel without preaching the gospel. And that's what he's doing in verses 9 through 11. Gordon Fee, the late great New Testament scholar, refers to Paul's words here in verses 9 through 11 as a creed-like expression of the gospel itself. This is something that Paul has preached many times. It is something that has been recited by the churches many times. Can you imagine how many times this aged soldier of Christ has proclaimed this same message over and over again, and he never seems to tire of it? Hasn't lost its thrill to him? Still owns his loyalty? And in this kind of blessed detour into the message of the gospel itself, there in verses 9 through 11, it's clear that over the years, Paul's theology has not changed one bit. Here in his final letter, he is proclaiming the very same gospel he was proclaiming in his first letter, the letter to the church in Galatia. What a refreshing sign of faithfulness in the midst of so many who depart the faith. You know, we hear a lot about deconstructing these days. And the world loves the celebrity Christian deconstructor, doesn't it? If you want to get an article somewhere, just stand up and say, I was raised one of those rascally, mean, Bible-believing Christians, and they just ruined me. You'll have some reporter talk to you at some point. Just a little tip there if you want five minutes of fame. We're no strangers to deconstructing. We've, we've invented a word for it, deconstructing. The deconstructors. But that is not new at all. For instance, in Colossians, Paul sends greetings to that church, both from Luke, who we know, and from another Christian, uh, someone who had some sort of leadership within the church because Paul names him specifically, Demas. I send you greetings from Luke and Demas. But by the time we get here to 2 Timothy, near the end, Paul writes this, Do your best to come see me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Deconstructing, being unfaithful, not going for the long haul, that is nothing new. But not for Paul, even as he faces the inevitable date that he will have with the Roman sword He continues to proclaim the gospel. Notice essentially here in his words in verses 9 through 11 that the gospel is essentially a message of salvation. Now I say that because within the church there have always been those who want to reinvent, reinterpret, reimagine the gospel. And the Lord will have none of it. And the Apostle Paul will have none of it. It is still and has always been essentially a message of salvation. Verse 9, he refers to God as the one who saved us. Verse 10, he refers to the appearing of our Savior. Not our helper, not our guru, our Savior. Not the one who helps us self-actualize, but the one who saves us. The salvation, Paul continues in verse 9, was determined before the ages began according to God's own purpose and grace. That is, we are saved because of God's mercy, His sovereign mercy. We are saved by the will of God, under the command of His sovereign decree, not because of our own failing will, 
this great salvation prefigured throughout the history of redemption. Throughout the history of God's dealings with Israel, as we read about it in the Old Testament, it is this same salvation. And it has now, verse 10, been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this saving work, again in verse 10, encompasses the abolition of death and the raising up to life eternal of all who believe. Death is still the great taboo subject, isn't it? I read recently about a wealthy man in California who is seeking to reverse the aging process by giving himself regular blood transfusions from his 17 or 18 year old son. That's not normal. He's had several articles written about him and he's had appearances on CNN and other networks. He is so convinced that he can stave off death that he will basically act as a vampire upon his own son. But the hope here, the hope for the abolition of death is found where where it has always been, in Christ Jesus. We must take to heart Paul's language because there are always those who seek to shape the gospel into something else, whether it be a self-help technique or a device for our social causes or a promise for psychological wholeness. Now, does the gospel comfort us in our affliction? Yes. No greater comfort than the gospel. Will the gospel impact society? as more and more people believe in Christ and follow Jesus? Well, I would hope so. But all of that will only be true so long as we do not reduce the gospel to something lesser than what it is, which is the good news of salvation for wretched sinners, salvation from the wrath of God and from the tyranny of death. Paul mentions in verse 12 that He suffers for the gospel and that this is because he has not hidden it away, that he is not ashamed of it. Brothers and sisters, I know that everywhere we look, it seems as though violence and immorality and everything else that mocks God and harms our neighbor, I know that it seems like all of this is gaining ground. And I know it is distressing. It distresses me. The onslaught of wickedness is justifiably distressing to people who love God and love their neighbor. Because all of that is bad for our neighbor. But listen to me now. Don't ever despair. Don't ever panic. One of the things you see among the apostles, even though they were still fallible men, men who were sinners, nevertheless, in their divinely set-apart role as apostles, writing under the Holy Spirit, one of the things we do not see them ever doing is panicking. We never see them so distressed that they despair. We see them hard-pressed. We see them under pressure. We see them heartbroken, but we never see them panic because as Paul says here I know whom I have believed and I know that he is able to guard 
until that day what has been entrusted to me. The key to Paul's confidence in the gospel is that he knows the God whose gospel it is. For I know whom I have believed. Brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to panic, when your circumstances press into the degree that you are ready to give way to despair, why don't you say the words of Paul here? No, because I know whom I have believed. It's not just what we believe, although it is that. It is supremely, ultimately, who we believe. Paul could endure the suffering that was his present lot, and he could endure without panic the suffering that was yet to come because he knew God. He knew the one that he believed. And he was comforted by the fact that this gospel that he had entrusted to him, he himself will guard, he himself will keep. Think about it. The Father put His beloved and eternal Son upon a cross so that we would have hope, so that we would have the gospel. So don't you think for a minute that God will ever let it fail. He put His Son on the cross for it. I may fail the gospel. I hope I don't. But I may. You may fail the gospel. Whole denominations of churches may fail the gospel, but God will never, ever fail the message of salvation for every single sinner who believes. He put his son to grief for it. So however much the world spits and curses, Paul and Timothy and you and me and every generation of the church in between, we are on the winning side. The gates of hell, at their most secure and fortified positions, will fall at the power of the gospel. The church persecuted and mocked today, in the end, will be the church triumphant and at rest. So do not be ashamed of the gospel. Two things quickly, and they all relate to each other. Follow the body of doctrine handed down from the apostles. Follow the body of doctrine handed down from the apostles. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word pattern may be understood in terms of a design or an outline. Donald Guthrie compares the word to architectural designs. The word translated sound is often used in terms of health. So follow this pattern, this design of sound, healthy words. Now this would contrast to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, where he refers to the teachings of the false teachers as gangrene. Don't follow that, but follow the design, the pattern of sound, healthy words that you heard from me, Paul says. And so the pattern of sound words indicates this body of doctrine, which, having been passed down to the apostles from the Lord Jesus, is now entrusted to the church. And we see this principle elsewhere in the New Testament. So, for instance, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, referring to 
um, the, the, the qualifications of elders or overseers in the church. Quote, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaking of his own experience. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You see the tradition of I received this pattern of sound words, now I entrusted it to you. Or Jude, the brother of the Apostle James, and yes, that means he was the half-brother of Jesus, writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, that is a reference to the body of doctrine given from Christ to the apostles entrusted to the church. Jude says we must contend for this. We must fight for this. Now, I don't want to upset anybody, but all of what you've been hearing here is the language of tradition. It's tradition. Some of you have been taught that tradition is bad. Tradition, good. I understand. In the hands of sinful people, tradition can become ungood, just like every good thing, right? But tradition in and of itself is good. This is the pattern we see throughout the Scriptures, going all the way back, for instance, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. What are you going to say to your sons when they ask you, as they look at all of these ceremonies that God has prescribed, what are you going to say to them when they say, what does all of this mean? And you're going to explain it to them. And you're going to tell them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're going to take all of this truth and you're going to take all of this this instruction that's been handed down to you and you're going to bind it to your forehead and you're going to bind it to your hand and you're going to teach it to your children when they rise up and you're going to teach it to your children when they lie down and you're going to teach it to your children as they go along the way and each succeeding generation is going to do this. Brothers and sisters, we call that tradition. And we have a great tradition handed down to us, a body of doctrine inspired and given directly from the Lord through the prophets and the apostles, to us. It's a doctrinal tradition given careful exposition by the early church fathers and affirmed by the great ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, taken up and reaffirmed by the great uh, confessions of faith of the Reformation, our own doctrinal standard, the Westminster Standards, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters, we are inheritors of a great tradition, a massive body of doctrine, of teaching, reaching all the way back to Jesus and the apostles, and even before that, the God-inspired prophets. And notice how Paul does not simply say that we are to accept it as true, although we are, but that we are to follow this pattern of sound words. Faithful orthodoxy involves right belief and right practice. Don't ever divide what God has brought together. Follow this. It's not enough that Paul would say, just accept it. He wants you to follow it because really believing is to follow our great doctrinal tradition. This great body of biblical doctrine is not simply fodder for debate, but it is living God-given truth to embrace, to believe, and follow. 
So follow this body of doctrine handed down to us, entrusted to us by Jesus through the apostles. And then finally, guard the treasury. Guard the treasury of doctrine entrusted to us. Do you see verse 14? As Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, there had been a growing departure from the apostolic teaching in the churches, particularly in the Roman province of Asia, which included the churches in Ephesus and Colossae. They'd seen a falling away. They'd seen an introduction of error and falsehood. One church historian went so far as to say that during this time, as Christians were suffering death in Rome and as other churches were were being influenced by heresy, he writes this, quote, Christianity trembled, humanly speaking, on the verge of annihilation. In verse 15, Paul writes that all in Asia have turned away from him, meaning they've rejected the gospel. They've rejected the very message he preached the very message that those churches were built upon. Little wonder then that he could boil down the essence of this one letter to this call. Guard the trust. Guard the trust. Guard the treasure. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit to which Paul refers is the same thing he's just referred to In verse 13, this pattern of sound words. The word translated guard is applied elsewhere in the Bible to refer to guarding a home against invaders or guarding a treasure against those who would steal it. We guard what is precious, don't we? We guard what is valuable. If something has great value, we don't just leave it lying around. We don't neglect it. If we do neglect it, it's because ultimately it doesn't have that much value to us. The most secure and well-guarded place on the planet is a building found on a plot of ground south of Louisville, Kentucky. It's located on the 109,000-acre Fort Knox, the Army base. It's where the United States houses its gold reserves, a resource meant to protect or at least help protect the value of our currency. And it's estimated that the gold within this massive vault is valued at over a quarter of a trillion dollars. Now, in the past, this building at one time housed the Declaration of Independence, like the real one, not the one that you get in the gift shop, the Declaration of Independence. It housed, at one point, the Constitution of the United States. In fact, during the 1940s, it housed the Magna Carta. The entire building is a massively fortified vault. It's made up of granite steel, and steel-reinforced concrete. And it's said to be able to withstand the explosion of an atomic bomb. It's surrounded by an array of security measures, including movement sensors, heavily armed soldiers, Apache helicopters that will be in the air in minutes. Rumor has it that the vault is surrounded by landmines and electric fences, machine guns that fire automatically when laser sensors are triggered. That'd be kind of cool. Of course, armed soldiers are always patrolling in plain sight. And then you have the 40,000 soldiers on duty right there at Fort Knox every single day. 
So even making it to the door of the vault is nearly unthinkable. But even if by some miracle you made it to the door of the vault, you'd have a problem given that it is made of steel and weighs more than 20 tons. That's just the door. No single person knows how to get in. It's set on a 100-hour time lock that can only be opened by a select number of members of the staff who each have an individual dial in separate combinations unknown to any of the others. And in fact, the majority of those who work in and around the facility can only speculate about the full details of the security there. In fact, it is so secure that the term Fort Knox has found its way into our popular vernacular to refer to anything that's locked down really well. Now, if something like gold needs to be guarded so carefully, how much more should we guard the gospel of infinitely greater value? Sadly, however, I think the church has often treated this priceless treasure as though it's not even worth a nightlight. The church often treats error like creative innovations, or even heresy like a needful revolution in our theological status quo. Now, I understand that there are some matters that Christians in good faith Christians equally committed to the authority of God's word can disagree upon without breaking fellowship. I understand that. But I'm concerned that we have so broadened the scope of the gospel. We've so broadened the scope of the great deposit of truth entrusted to us as to reduce it to the barest few necessities rather than the deep, rich mine of pure gold that it is. Our goal should not be to find the most reductionistic and minimalistic ground of doctrine upon which we can find agreement, that doesn't build a very robust unity. Our goal ought to be to find agreement on as much as we possibly can and where we don't agree, then let's study more, let's go back to the book, let's go back to our tradition where we might disagree because I might be wrong and I want to know what's true. So learn our doctrinal standards, learn the Bible, Learn the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. Well, what is that? Is that extra to the Bible? No, it's the world's best Bible study. If you're you're coming from a non-confessional church, um, the Westminster Standards, that is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the larger and shorter catechisms are the best Bible study ever written. I'm not saying that hyperbolically. It just really is. Learn it. It's a gold mine of biblical doctrine. Doctrine entrusted to the apostles, passed along to us. The world needs churches like this. Christians who have guarded the trust, who are not ashamed of the gospel, who follow the pattern of sound words passed down to us through the scriptures. Lord knows the world does not need another compromised church. In 1933, in the depths of the Great Depression, and in the heyday of theological liberalism, which was bringing entire denominations down, J. Gresham Machen sought to answer the question, what is the church's responsibility in such a time as this? And his answer is no less needful today than it was in the 1930s. Listen to Machen. Quote, The responsibility of the church in this new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. 
It is to testify this, it is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, no, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity. That there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all. That he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord. That there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free. And that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens, are as of the dust of the street. And that's it. The responsibility of God's people has not changed. The gospel has not changed. The deposit of truth has not changed. So guard it. Guard the gospel. Follow this pattern of sound words that we have received through God's word. Guard what has been entrusted to you, church. And along the way, never forget that it is ultimately God who will ensure that his gospel is safeguarded and endures. When we fail, fear not. God will not fail. And just as the Holy Spirit himself enabled the apostles and the first generation of Christians and each succeeding generation of the faithful to guard that good deposit, so may he enable us to do the same. We may rightly be distressed about our nation and about the state of the church. We may rightly grieve the wickedness out there and the sin in here. But we need never fear the ultimate safety and the going forth of the gospel. The Lord will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask your blessing upon your word. We ask, God, that you would grant it to us to be courageous for the sake of the gospel, to be courageous for the sake of our Savior and our King, that we would, with love and clarity, with courage and compassion, Continue to hold to and follow and safeguard the treasure that you've entrusted to us. And may it be for your glory and for the salvation of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?